Good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, I want you to find the book of 2 Corinthians. And when you find the book of 2 Corinthians, would you find with me verses 11? And I'm going to preach this morning from verses 11 down through the end of the chapter in the second to last installment of this sermon series we've been in called More Than Ever. I know that if you are a guest, you've already been welcomed, whether you're here with us live or you're watching online through the gift of technology, but we're in a journey called More Than Ever, and it's based out of Acts chapter 5, where the apostle Luke made a statement about people's salvation. He said, more than ever, men and women were coming to know the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And a few weeks ago, I grabbed those words to best describe where we are. I really believe our church is in a unique moment. I was visiting with some guests in the concourse before the service, and I was explaining to them that they've come at a good time because we're in the middle of this vision series. And part of that is because I do believe our church is at an important juncture. When you think about this moment, I've described it to you in three ways. One, more than ever, the Lord has been good to us. Amen? He's been faithful to us. Think about the lives you've already seen on the stage this morning, both new families, new members, and new believers professing their faith. And there are many, many more to be introduced to you between now and the end of the year. More than ever, he's been good to us. More than ever, though, our community needs the gospel. I still can't get my mind wrapped around that 70% of our community is not connected to a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, gospel-centered church. And then, of course, more than ever, if God's been especially good to us, and if our community is in a real need for the gospel, we need to do something about it. And that third statement really drives the more than ever journey. Just a few weeks ago, I stood before you and made that announcement that we were entering into something called more than ever. Let me give you the definition of more than ever. More than ever is a three-year spiritual journey of generosity to provide financial funding for debt retirement and the expansion of more campuses. Our desire is to enlist every member, and guests, I always remind you of that, every member, if you're a guest of ours, we don't want anything from you but for you to be encouraged. Every member in the spiritual and financial journey of supporting our church's vision to become a deeply faithful, remarkably healthy, highly impactful, multi-site church. All of those phrases matter. Deeply faithful, remarkably healthy, and highly impactful. I've been covering those every few days in our Church of the Mill podcast, going deeper into the vision. I just encourage you, if you are a podcast person, to subscribe and pay attention and listen to the things that we're talking about, because we're all moving toward next week. And what is next week? Next week is the Sunday. We're at the conclusion of the service. My family, Laurel, will join me up on this stage, and we will gladly make a financial commitment above and beyond our tithes and offerings for the next three years 
And we will do that to join many families in this church to do three things with our dollars above our tithes and offerings. Those three things, to continue the debt retirement of the central campus. Let's knock it out. Let's get debt free. When we get debt free, we have a million dollars of mortgage payments per year freed up. Then let's have the capital to secure and prepare the locations of future campuses or the physical needs of our current campuses. Right now we have one in Woodruff and one in Lake Cooley and of course one here. But there are two very much online for next year that God has dropped in our lap. And then thirdly, have the capital set aside for the upfront cost in starting these campuses. Why? Well, I've been preaching on this for several weeks. I don't have time to review all of it, but we're going the way of saying, if God has been good to us here, let's turn each other out. You drove from every corner of this county, and some of you came from outside of this county this morning, and many of you are watching online from all over the upstate. And what we want is not just one place for you to go and get mad in the parking lot and then come back to Jesus in the worship service. We want to create life-giving congregations in all these communities, not built on the personality of one individual communicator, but led by young men who are trained to preach God's Word verse by verse, just as we are trained to preach God's Word verse by verse. And we want to do this by using this model of health and reproduction. And that's what next week represents. Now, that doesn't mean lay out next week because we're begging for money. We are not. My God's not broke. I'm not interested in manipulation. What I am interested in is being your faithful pastor. And if I'm faithful, I have to challenge you to join what God is doing. And people, God is doing something. He is doing something in our midst. And we would miss an opportunity if we didn't seize the moment that God has given us. So, we've been talking about what drives our decisions and our directions as a church. And ultimately, what drives those decisions and directions are our values, what we deeply care about. And we've articulated those values in this sermon series. There are six. We value the gospel of God in all things. Several weeks ago, we preached that. We value the word of God in preaching and the glory of God in worship. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about the legacy of God in the next generation and the spiritual growth of God in us. And I reminded you, that the goal is not to grow capital or grow cash or grow crowds or grow campuses. That's not the goal. It's to grow the church. How do you grow the church? You grow Christians. See, when people are growing spiritually, they invite their friends and loved ones to church. When people are growing spiritually, they lovingly and excitedly share of all of their time and their resources. When they're growing spiritually, they're people of prayer and they're intercessing before the Lord on behalf of their community. So the goal is to grow people up in the Lord and the Lord will take care of the out in the community, which leads to the two final values I'd like to address this morning as we prepare for next week. You see, you may think it counterintuitive to not talk about money today. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that if this is nothing more than a barrage of asks, for you to give money to something you may or may not understand fully, then those are the kind of results we're going to get. But when you begin to see what God has called our church to do, I'm believing 
that you don't need coercion or manipulation or guilt, that the Holy Spirit will lead you and your family to do whatever God calls you to do. Because next week, you set the pace for the future. People have asked me, Pastor, have you set a goal? Well, no. There's a couple of reasons. Number one, I tried to be a man of great confidence when I know what I'm talking about. And as a dude, one of the things we struggle with is we think we know what we're talking about even when we don't know what we're talking about. Half of adulting is showing up on time and acting like you know what you're doing, isn't it? But as your pastor, humbly and sincerely, I say to you, I've never done anything like this. You may say, well, pastor, we, we did this to build this building. We did this to build the kids' theater. That's right. Those were related to a very specific physical project we needed to construct. This is bigger than that. This is not about the next building to serve you or me. This is about a vision that's greater, so much greater than anything we've ever done. So I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but I've likened it to this. If you think about a jet airplane and you ask the pilot, how far and how fast do we fly? In other words, how far can we fly and how fast can we get there? Any good pilot will tell you that the first question he has to ask in order to answer your question is, how much fuel do I have? Because the amount of fuel determines how far and how fast he or she can fly. They can fly slower and burn less fuel and go a certain distance. And they can fly faster, burn more fuel, and get to the distance sooner. I believe in the vision. No number next week is going to take us off our vision or change our vision. It is deep within our leadership. You just determine the pace. You determine how far and how fast we can go as a church. Because we want to balance between faith and foolishness. I want you to be challenged to step out on faith, but we're not going to overextend ourselves and be foolish and ultimately, that's not a decision I can make because it's not my church. It's the Lord's church. And he ultimately is your leader. In thinking about that, though, it is important that we come to these last two values. The mission of God to the nations and the love of God in community. And you may say, how do those two connect together? I mean, there's a lot of ways you can think about the mission of God to the nations. This is what we say more specifically. We value the mission of God to the nations, so we go often and give sacrificially. In other words, it's just a part of the DNA of our church to be mobilizing people to go on mission and to give to mission. And we value the love of God in community, so warmth and kindness and real relationships matter. For years we've said we want to be a place and a people of new beginnings and real relationships. When your life is struggling, cyber church does not work. You, you, you cannot be shepherded by a screen. You need relationships with real people, real church members, real friends, real loved ones, real small group members, real pastors who can sit with you and laugh real laughs and cry real tears and read real Bibles and apply them in real life situations. We know the world is groaning for this and all of us 
as we navigated the pandemic of 2020 and 2021, we recognized our need for community. But you might go, well, isn't that two sermons? One's about missions, let's march off into the world, and the other one's about community, and let's huddle up and love one another. Actually, no. See, there's a couple of ways you can think about what we do here. You could say, well, we are a people that meet together. We're a people that stand together, or we're a people that just want to stay together. You know, that meeting together kind of is the basis. That standing together is on truth. That staying together is about unity. And I, I think there's great truth in those statements. I just think they're incomplete. In fact, let me submit to you a better way of saying it. We go together. Now, now what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean what they sang in the late 1970s to culminate the movie Grease, We Go Together. In fact, those lyrics, I, I, I don't know that I can make any sense of them. There may be some in here who can. We go together like Rama, Lama, Lama, Kadinga, Da Dinga Dong, <laughs> remembered forever as Shuwap, Shawada Wada, Yippity, Boom Da Boom. I may need to see a Pentecostal at the end of the service to help me with this. <laughs> chang, chang, changity, chang, shubop. That's the way it should be. Wah, ooh, yeah. And I don't know, but that's exactly how I remember it sounded in my head. I actually looked at the other verses. They add nothing more to this sermon, so I'm just giving you the first one. The reality is, when we think about we go together, it's got to be a lot deeper than that. Let me give it to you this way. We go together. The we is the church. The go is the commission. The together is the community. We don't just sit together. We don't just be together. We don't just stand together. We don't just gather together. We go together. Now, of course, when most people in their minds think of their church, they're typically drawn to an address and a day. <laughs> I actually preached a sermon a few weeks ago about how Sundays matter. I'm all about an address. I'm grateful for the physical places that we can gather. <laughs> That's one of the premises of more campuses and more communities for more people to be able to connect. And I love Sundays. It is certainly my favorite day of the week, and it's so good to see you. But if church is just that, just where you go and when you go there, then I'm afraid we've missed something great about the gospel. In fact, if you just make unity your goal and you miss the mission, it will eventually fall apart. But if you just think about the mission and never attempt to do it together, you'll leave much to be desired. So we go together. Would you say that with me? We go together. Now let me show you what I mean in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of 2 Corinthians for several reasons. But the main reason was he heard that the church had righted its wrongs. This is one of the great success stories of a church that was struggling. The wheels were wobbling. It was veering outside of the boundaries. 
And the leaders of the church, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, through the truth of men like Paul, righted their wrongs. They got back on track. I love to hear of a church that was struggling and has been revitalized. A church that was dying and now there's life again. I think about that and what happened at Lake Cooley. We were approached by about 30 precious people who said, we believe God has called us to this community and we've worked hard for many years. Our campus is debt free. We care about these people, but we've gone as far as we can go alone. Would you consider talking to us? And as we shared with them what God had led us to do, those people courageously voted to bring their fellowship on paper, not in the spirit, to an end, join our fellowship. And the last day of their last service, less than 50 people prayed together. About eight months later, when we reopened, 500 people showed up. One of the senior adult women stood in the hallway and wept because the baby room was filled with babies. And she hadn't seen that for years. And she was one of the ones who was always tapped to rock the babies. And she said, I longed for so long to see that room filled with babies again. Churches who are struggling can find their way. They can be revitalized. And we want to be a part of that. The book of 2 Corinthians is a church that has found its way. When Paul wrote to them before they repented, he references it as the tearful letter. He didn't want to say the hard things he had to say, but he said them anyway. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, not our passage to get today, Paul referenced that. He said, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul says, I didn't want to hurt you. But I knew what I was going to say would hurt you because you were in the wrong and I wanted you in the right. And if I didn't love you, I'd have kept my mouth shut. That's the easy thing to do. But if I love you, I'm going to speak truth to you. And Paul had done that. And as Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he's writing to a repentant church trying to explain ministry again. And that's where we come to verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Say amen, church. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is too good to stop reading here. Look at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard them, this, him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
Their that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Paul basically said, let me tell you why I want you to go, why I went, and I want you to go not as individuals, but I want you to go together. Why, why do we go together? Why, why does next week matter? Let me tell you what doesn't matter about next week. It doesn't matter to me next week the amount you put on your commitment card. That's between you and the Lord. I'll never know what that is. It doesn't matter next week what the final number is because I'm going to trust that God's going to deliver whatever he chooses to. What matters to me next week is that next week we drive a stake in the ground and say, we know God's been good to us, and we're marching out to the next chapter of our vision, and we're doing it together. And why? Three reasons. One, we go together because of what we know. What do we know to be true? The first thing we know is we know very simply what verse 11 says. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. In other words, we know the Lord as our God. Now, this is very important, especially in our day and time. Paul here, when he refers to the Lord, he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. We're not a religious institution or an organization that's simply trying to pad our bank account. We are a people who have been redeemed by the only Messiah God has sent. And we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one true living God. We believe that. So it's very important for you to understand that this drives all of our decisions. In fact, in verse 11, he speaks, first of all, of the fear of the Lord. We know the Lord as God, so there is a fear of a reckoning. In other words, we believe that God will hold us in account for what we do with the life we have. I don't know if I need to say this to such a biblically informed, God-honoring congregation. I can't speak for you individually. I don't have the ability to gauge where you are, but I can tell you as a whole, I'm grateful for the depth and the maturity of our congregation. So I assume you're able to look at the world around you and make some sense of it by what the Bible says. But if you needed a reminder over the last 10 days, folks, the Lord is coming back. Amen. He's coming back. And, and one of the things that we see when we see yet another fulfilled prophecy in the Middle East is a reminder of this. Now, just a word about Israel. This is important. Scripturally speaking, as believers, we have to recognize that one of God's sovereign designs for humanity is the role of government. And every state has the right to defend its citizens. Every state. And so we defend that not only in our own views as a country, but as Christians who believe in the Bible, we know that God gives government, not that every government is God-honoring, but God's structure of government on earth is given to protect its citizenry. In fact, we will have people connected to our church 
who have given their lives over to serve in our armed forces who will be mobilized because of these incidents, and we should honor their bravery and certainly pray for them. When we think of Israel, every state has a right to defend itself. But secondly, the Bible's very clear that we are to love and pray for Israel. In fact, look at what the Scripture says in the book of Psalm. I'll put it on the screen. Psalm 122, 6 through 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure. May they be secure who love you. Peace within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. God loves Israel. And God loves his people. God certainly has a special place in his heart for Jerusalem. If you'll allow me one day, I'd like to take you there when all this settles down. And if you get a chance to go, you will see the power of the presence of God in that place. And so we certainly should pray for peace in Israel. But third, I would say, and I think this is really important for you and me to remember as we watch the world's events unfold before us, don't be surprised. Don't, don't be worried. Your Savior perfectly prepared you for what you're seeing in Israel. Remember what he says in the book of Matthew. He says these words, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. This is no surprise to the Lord, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. This is one of the greatest ways we understand the fourth and final statement. Every Israeli and every Palestinian has one thing in common. Just like every American, they need the Lord. They need the Lord. In other words, no one steps into heaven any other way but being righteous in the eyes of God. But there's no way to be righteous other than the blood of Jesus covering your sins. Did you know there are Palestinian Christians and Israeli Christians both in Gaza and in, of course, Israel? And all of those churches are praying for this conflict, of course, to come to an end, but for this to be yet another opportunity for people of all nationalities in that region to recognize their need for the Lord. And this is what comes back to you and me. Look what we have. Look what we have. Look around you. We live in certainly a world of brokenness. And I recognize there are threats every day. And I'm so thankful for those men and women in our service, those even on our campus today who've given their life to law enforcement to keep us safe. But we live compared to that part of the world in a tremendous amount of peace. And we better be careful not to grow apathetic or unappreciative of that. No one is going to threaten your life if you speak the name of Christ tomorrow at your workplace. No one is stopping us from expanding campuses and trying to reach more people. And it doesn't mean that we care so much about Spartanburg County that we forget about Israel. It's a both and. The more people who can sit under the truth of God's word here are more of a pool of people we can pull from to send there. The fire that's brightest from the distance is hottest at the source. And so as a church, we understand and fear the Lord. But we don't just fear the Lord, as Paul points out here. 
We also know what it means to have a faith relationship. Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are known, what, what we are, excuse me, is known to God. So Paul says, I fear the Lord, so I work to get the gospel out. But when the world condemns me, I'm not worried because my God knows me. See, it's, it's not just that I know the Lord. He knows me. In fact, he began the whole relationship. I couldn't find him. He found me. We don't choose Jesus without Christ first working within us to draw us to himself. This is why Paul says in the second phrase of verse 11 and then into verse 12, these words beginning with, we are not, what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again. That's almost the idea. I'm not trying to reintroduce myself, but I do want to give you cause to boast about us, that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul says, people are going to ask you about me. And when they ask you about me, I want you to tell them that I know the Lord. Boy, what a testimony for a church. As we grow out, as we attempt to do things that are great for God, people may say, what, what's your motive? What's going on there? What's driving that? I hope you can say, the Lord, the Lord. This is not a congregation captivated by numbers or statistics. We're not in a race. I just think we're going to be held accountable to take advantage of what we're experiencing as a church. And I think the greatest way for a church to maintain its health is not to hoard people, but to send them out, to, to reproduce, to go from just addition to multiplication. And Paul says, I want to live in such a way that when you boast about me, this is Paul, that you boast about who I am in the Lord. And, and, and when you think about that, you then also know that we not only know the Lord as God, we know his love in the gospel. Look at verse 14. I love the way verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this. Paul says, the controlling factor of my life is the love of Christ. And here's why. I've reached a conclusion. Look at the conclusion uh, beginning in the second phrase of verse 14. That one has died for all. This is why we reject the idea that all religions lead to the same place. One man died for all. One man. Paul says, I've, I've come to understand that one man died for all. Now, look at the ramifications of that statement. This is so theologically rich. He says, we have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Everyone in Christ has died to self. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So we see the love of God in the death of Christ, and we see the love of God in the life of Christ. In his death, our sins are paid. In his life, 
our life is made. One of the New Testament scholars, uh, last name of Garland, said it this way. I love this statement. The gift of redemption that comes through Christ's death and resurrection requires that we change the way we live. Now, now the word sentence there is very, excuse me, the word order is very important in that sentence. The gospel does not teach, I change the way I live, and then I earn salvation. Because then it wouldn't be a gift. But have you been so overwhelmed by a gift that it changed the way you live? In other words, someone gave you something freely, but the ramifications of the gift affected the rest of your life. Maybe you had a wealthy grandparent. Or you inherited some money at some point early in your life. I really hope you come next week. <laughs> but I've known people who were hardworking. I'm not talking about people who were lazy, hardworking. And for whatever reason, an, an unexpected blessing came. And that was the difference in a down payment for a house. Or maybe canceling some car payment debt, or maybe even attacking a, a credit card from a period of time when perhaps decisions weren't being made as wise as we tend to make them when we get older. But that gift was immediately put into a payment, and it changed your ability to, to buy a better vehicle, or to, to maybe get a larger home, or, or, or to pay down some debt, or to be generous. One of the things I always say about generosity is that the rigging of generosity is that generosity is God's built-in mechanism not to become materialistic. You see, see, the enemy of materialism is generosity. In other words, if I'm always loose to give anything I have, then by default I'm not gripping what I have too tightly, which shows that my joy is in the giver and not the gift. And so it's interesting to watch, and I've seen this over the years, some of the most wealthy, joyous Christians happen to also end up being the most generous Christians because they recognize that in generosity, they're guarding their life from the love of money. And, and, and actually, you began to be generous by faith even when you can be generous with a little because the Savior teaches us that when He trusts you with a little and you are faithful, he opened the door in your life to trust you with a lot. That's not a one-to-one. -one. I'm not suggesting that you write a check you can't cash. I'm not saying in any way you pay a certain money to a certain cause or a church in order to gain wealth. That motive kills the blessing. But I'll just tell you this. I have watched people at every level of the socioeconomic scale, when they learn generosity, they fall more in love with the joy of giving then they do the joy of whatever they may have kept for themselves. And this is ultimately what this scholar is saying. The gift of the gospel changes the way we live, which is why when someone has no change in their life, I go back to the gospel. I go back to the surrender and the repentance and the resurrection. He goes on to say, we are no longer allow our selfish desires to twist the way we regard or treat others. And then he makes a powerful statement. Let this sink in. To accept death with Christ so that our own longings, purposes, and securities are also put to death requires a risky venture of faith. I think there's some risk to next week. I just believe the risks are worth taking far more 
than the fear I have of us folding our hands and being yet another wonderfully blessed, exceptionally large church that just enjoys one another until the Lord returns. That haunts me. So when you think about what we know, let me close by showing you we go together because of how we see. If you need to be encouraged today, this is why you came. Listen to this part of the sermon. In verse 16, from now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, when Paul was Saul, he thought Jesus was a fraud. When Paul was Saul, for those of you that don't know, he was named Saul before he changed his name. God changed his name to Paul. He thought Jesus was a fraud, a man. That's what he means here. I regarded Christ in the flesh. I just saw him as Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth another would-be prophet. But when Paul met the Lord and realized he was the Messiah, as he said he was, which was affirmed by his death and resurrection, Paul says, when I changed the way I saw Christ, guess what? It changed the way I see people, which is why he says these words. Look at verse 16, or verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now look at verse 16 again. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Two statements. We go together because we now see sinners for what they could be. We see a lost and dying world for what it could be, not what it is. We don't regard it in the flesh. We don't hate people because of the lies and the untruths they've built their lives on. We're not angry at a lost and dying world for acting lost and dying. We see them as people who could be redeemed upon faith and repentance in Christ. We don't regard them in the flesh. But secondly, we also see saints for what they are. When people come to know the Lord, they're not just a better version. They are a new creation. This verse has encouraged many Christians for many years who found themselves back reminded of what they once were. And Paul says, when you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And then he goes on to add these words. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Verse, second phrase. The old has passed away and the new has come. You might be ashamed of your past, but to God is dead. It's dead. It's gone. It's not here. There are people in my life that are gone. Loved ones that I've lost. They are dead. I say that respectfully. They have passed away. Many of them knew the Lord, so they're with the Lord. And my hope is I will see them. But I can assure you they're not here. No such thing as ghosts. There may be demonic powers who want to scare people. But when you die, you're either with the Lord or you're out of his presence. That's the only two options the Scripture gives us. So the people in my life that are dead are gone. There are memories with me. Certainly I'm influenced by the decisions they made, and some of them I carry their DNA in me. But they're gone. Friend, I want you to know that in Christ, your sins are gone. They're dead. The life you once lived, 
is no more in the sight of God. He has not erased it from your memory because usually the memory of what you once were can be used by the Holy Spirit to produce a desire to not go down that path anymore. But in the economy of God's grace, he never sees you that way again. You are a new creation. And that is exactly what every person needs to experience in their life. And that's why a church stays together only when it goes together. Which leads to the way he ends it. I love the way he ends it. We go together because of what we know. We go together because of how we see the world. But thirdly and finally, we go together because of who we are, of what we are. Uh, last month, a guy named Richard Olson was convicted of what is called white-collar crime. He didn't rob a convenience store. He didn't steal a car. He actually did a lot worse than that. He's a former ambassador of the United States of America. An ambassador is a diplomat, a diplomat lives in the world of diplomacy. The idea of being an ambassador is that you are a messenger of the government or the king you represent. You do not speak on your own authority. It's even better than that. You speak on his authority, her authority, or the authority of the government that has sanctioned, appointed, and commissioned you as an ambassador. But what this means is, is that you cannot have an ulterior motive. And Richard Olson has been found guilty and is facing a prison sentence because he took diamonds and cars and untold amounts of wealth to share sensitive information and political favors in exchange for personal wealth and gain. Now, I want to be careful here, but I understand that's an issue up in Washington right now. He was an ambassador. Now he's a disgraced former ambassador who's facing a prison sentence. Look what Paul says. He says, verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that's Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Goodness gracious, Paul is saying, God is so proud of the redeemed that he poured his wrath on his son that he might pour his righteousness on the redeemed, and we want you to be redeemed. And we're not coming to you judgmentally. We're not coming to you with some sort of personal divine power. We just represent him. Every summer as a little boy, I went to Shaco Springs Retreat Center in Talladega, Alabama, not the racetrack, the retreat center. And that's where the RA camp was, the boys' RA camp. Anybody here grow up in RAs? They stood for Royal Ambassadors. That's what we were. We were RAs. And this was the pledge as a Royal Ambassador. I will do my best to become a well informed, responsible follower of Christ, to have a Christ like concern for all people, to learn the message of Christ is carried around the world, to work with others in sharing Christ, and to keep myself clean and healthy in mind and body. We used to sing this chant early in the morning as eight year old boys in need of a shower. <laughs> we are Royal, Royal, Ambassadors, Ambassadors, Ambassadors for Christ. 
We'll share the good news of Christ today. Christ today, witness in our work and play. We're royal, royal ambassadors, ambassadors, ambassadors for Christ. As an eight-year-old with a limited vocabulary, I've expanded it very little since then. I had to figure out, what does that word mean? Nobody ever called me an ambassador. And then I read this passage. We're just messengers of the king. That's what we do. I think about that in relationship to our church. Here's some things that cause me to be staggered. Right now, as a part of our local missions, 157 families are being served who live below the poverty line. Since we reopened the cafe after COVID, you've given $55,765 in tips. You love your coffee. (laughs) We don't keep any of it. We send it right to local missions partners. This coming year, we have 22 mission trips planned all over the world. And next year, out of our tithes and offerings, not more than ever, I'm talking about your normal weekly, monthly giving. 1.6 million is already earmarked for missions and only missions. See, I have a God who's a backfiller. The more we sin, he just backfills. The more people we send, he just backfills. So listen, we don't meet together. We don't sit together. We don't stand together. We go together. And that's what God has called us to do. We go together.